Welcome to the Reflective Teacher Podcast, brought to you by the Jewish United Fund of Chicago. I'm Martha Weil, and together with my real-life co-teacher and co-host, Lindsay Elliott, we're bringing you interviews with experts in early childhood education. We hope these stories will inspire you and give you that aha moment that we as teachers find so refreshing and clarifying. Over the course of this episode, we hope you'll reflect and make connections that will help you bring intention and motivation to your classroom each day. On today's episode, it's all about teacher language. Our guest, Tom Hobson, otherwise known as Teacher Tom, is a well-known preschool teacher, blogger, speaker, and writer. He's also author of the book, Teacher Tom's First Book. Tom is passionate about the language we use with children and the role it plays in teaching. He is articulate and confident in the principles that guide his everyday work with his students, starting with the way in which we speak and interact with them. Much of our conversation centers around the competency of young children and our choice as educators to talk at them or with them. So without any further ado, here's our interview with Tom Hobson. Tom Hobson. Hi, Tom. This is Martha Weil and Lindsay Elliott. Hi, Martha. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. We're so glad you were able to um, do this interview with us. Well, I'm I'm glad I could too, and I'm glad you reached out to me. I know. You were so quick. I like on Facebook. Wait, Martha's like, I think I'm just gonna Facebook him. Yeah, like the day we decided to do it, we were just, I was just like, I'm just gonna see. And then you responded so fast, I, I was like, so happy. So we're so glad. <laughs> were you just in Australia? Yeah, I got back uh, a couple weeks ago. That's amazing. Yeah. Were you on tour there, doing some conferences? I was kind of, I was kind of everywhere. When I go to Australia, I typically go, um, and you know, I, I go from anywhere from two to five weeks. Wow. And then what I do is I travel around the country and I do different, you know, do professional development with different schools. And then I also speak at conferences or whatever happens to be there during my window. So I have some colleagues there who try to fill up. I tell them what time I'm going to be there and they try to book up all my time. <laughs> oh, I mean, wow. the blog, what's beautiful about a blog, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's like you have neighbors all over the world. Yeah. Um, you know, because I started blogging in 2009. And I think in 2011, somebody from the UK said, hey, do you want to come speak at a conference? And I never even thought about that. I said, okay, if you're paying for my ticket, I'll go. (laughs) And then then a couple months later, somebody invited me to Greece. I said, okay, I'll go to Greece. And and, and uh, it was was quite some time before anybody in the U.S. invited me. I, I was in Australia, I think. I think I'd spoken to at a couple U.S. events, but then yeah. Australia, they had, they've had me come down for seven years. You know, I've been, you know, Iceland and, uh, and China and Vietnam and all those places. Um, but it's just, it's, I've only just now begun to talk to people in the U.S. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, what we want to talk about with you today is teacher language. And we're really excited about you um, for that topic because we love the way you write and the way you write about dealing with just the day-to-day in your classroom and how you seem to um, run your classroom. And we think that teacher language like really is the impression that we make on children and, it, and it's a big part of teaching. Um, I think it's a huge part. And so we thought it was like really important to do an episode on that. But be- before we get into it though, can you give um, a little bit of background on yourself and what you do like professionally now? Okay. Um, yeah, whatever you want. All right. Well, um, you know, I typically go by Teacher Tom. My name is Tom Hobson. I've uh, <laughs> been uh, um, I've been a cooperative preschool teacher for the last 18 years at the Woodland Park Cooperative School in Seattle, Washington. Um, it, a cooperative school. I probably should explain that a cooperative school is a school that is owned and operated by the parents who enroll their children. Right. And it's a legal entity, so this isn't just a symbolic ownership. They literally own the school and run the school. So I have. I'm the only paid employee. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means that the, uh, the parents who own the school, they they literally they hire me, they fire me, they evaluate me. Um, wow. and, and they do all the other jobs that go into making a school operate. So they do the administrative work, they do the financial work, uh, they do the enrollment, they handle the field trips, they do maintenance, they do uh, janitorial work, they do all of the work that goes into making a school operate. Wow. Um, and, 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 and then additionally, uh, they work in the classroom with me right. as my assistant teachers, which means that um, they have to give up at least one day a week uh, or one morning or one afternoon a week to spend time in the classroom with me. And that's also a requirement of being enrolled in our school. 
so that's that's the way my school runs. I've been there for 18 years. Prior to that, I was with my own daughter in a cooperative school for three years, oh. uh, which is what got me involved in that. So I, I know no other model of early childhood education intimately um, other than a cooperative. So every child that goes to your school, their parents will volunteer sometime, like once per it's week? It's not volunteer. They're required. Required. Okay. And they're required by, uh, by it's, the, it's part of your ownership agreement. When you come in to become wow. an owner, you agree yeah. to send me an adult, one adult per wow. week wow. from your family. So it could either be a mother or father. Uh, sometimes it's a grandparent. Yep. Uh, oh. Every once in a while, somebody will hire like a like a nanny or somebody like that yeah. to come in and work in that place. But mostly it's mothers. Um and fathers. So, and it's a it's a pretty common uh, model here in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. We have uh, I, I estimate 250 cooperative preschools in the area. Very cool. And so it's 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 actually a really known thing. So it's right. it's common for employers to give their um, employees some time off to work in their kids' co-ops because wow. very often they themselves were in a co-op. Uh, in the early years. You know, every school, every preschool is a community of, of children. And ours right. really becomes a community of families because yeah, right. the kids get to know these parents and you know it's really working. I love nothing more than when a child, especially a four or five year old who's been with me for three years, is crying and they say something like, I want a mommy. Oh, you know, amazing. instead of I want, I want my mommy, they, they'll really, they, they really, and the parents really do. Um, uh, become one another's uh, the caretakers of all the children, which right. you know it's that classic great using uh, having a village to raise children. Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing. Really yeah, it sounds to me like uh, for a parent to be involved in your school, they really have to have a mind for early childhood education. Am I well? Am, they is that right? They have to, well. It, they develop that mind over time, right? Usually what they're coming yeah. in with is a commitment to spending a lot of time with their ch- children during yeah. their early years. A lot of parents, and there's a lot of, it's mostly mothers, but sometimes fathers who, who commit themselves to saying, you know, and this, it's very common to take maybe five years off uh, out of your career to just be a stay-at-home parent. I've got a lot of parents who are self-employed, a lot of parents who are artists and things mm-hmm. like that so they can make their own schedule. But it does have to be people who, who want to spend time with their kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And then what ages do you have? It sounds like you've got two, two to five-year-olds. Two to five. Yeah. And I guess it's, if I'm introducing myself, I should also yeah. um, mention the other part of what I do, the teacher Tom part. Yes. Um, so that is, I started, like I said, I said before, I started blogging in 2009. And really, this was a, you know, just really part of my reflective practice as a teacher. You know, it just became something I, I had been a professional writer prior to the birth of my daughter, and I had taken some time off from that. And in that time, I'd written a couple of early childhood articles for local publications, and I, it, it kind of felt like, what a waste. Now they're in magazines, and they're going to get recycled, and I put a lot of work into them. So <laughs> someone told me about blogs. I don't even think I'd ever read a blog before. <laughs> um, they just told me about it, so I got a, you know, a template off of you know Google or someplace <laughs> and just plugged these articles into thinking, okay, this is just where I'm going to house those articles so people can read them if they want to. And then I began to understand that you know every day I realized, you know, I could write another one. I could write another one. And I... And now since then, I've written almost every single day, you know, since, you know, for the last oh, 10 years, gosh, at this point, yeah. this is 2019, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, and it just, you know, and from there, people started reading the blog, and I started, uh, you know, people started inviting me then to come and speak, and and uh, I've written a book now, and yes. I've got another book that's coming out probably in January. And so it's, uh, it's become a little kind of um, a surprising second career in my life. Yeah, that's, I bet that's wonderful, like, just to have had that kind of blossom, like, the way it did. And your writing is very um, journal-like in a way that, like, it's it's short so that it's, like, keeps your attention, and it's just, like, got a nice flow to it. Well, thank you. I I really appreciate that compliment. I've tried really hard to, um, uh, I try to keep it, I try to keep it around four paragraphs. Yeah. Um, four, maybe five paragraphs. I, you know, I don't want it to be something that people feel like, ah, I'll bookmark that and read it later. Right. I want people just to say, I could just sit down and I can crank through this real quick. And I know I have a lot of readers who say they, you know, every morning with their cup of coffee, they read the post. And it, and it's, I bet that's sort of like a mindfulness practice in and of itself for those people in the morning. It probably just sets their, their mind so right 
Um, I mean, I want to do that now. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, one of my visions of it, the reason I try to post at the same time every day, and it's hard to do it every day because I travel a lot and things. Right. But the truth is, is that I thought about it that, you know, I used to commute to work when I was worked for the man back in the day. And I'd drive yeah. in my car and I'd listen to my radio program every morning. And I love that little half hour radio, you know, right. and, I, and I became, I became addicted to it. It was just like my little kind of, like you said, it set your mind right. Exactly. Um, and I also would love to discuss your book a little bit, too. Can you just kind of give, like, a little overview of what you have in there? Well, essentially what the book is is, is I had no intention of writing a book. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm sitting down and writing every morning already as it is. I'm sitting down and writing for a period of time and doing the best writing I can do. But people kept asking me, well, when are you going to write a book? When is the book <laughs> coming out? And I would just say, well, what do you want? I'm not, I don't have time to write more. And I can't write better than I'm already writing. And it occurred to me that what people were asking me for is to collect um, sort of the, the blog posts, I guess it's a kind of a combination of the most popular blog posts, the ones that got the most, have had the most readers, and the ones that I wished had the most readers. I like that, um, yeah. And kind of combined them together. Um, it, so in, a, in, in many regards, it's sort of like you can sit down and read it straight through for sure. I like to think of it as the same type of thing as the blog for something where somebody can sit down, crack the book, and op- open it any place and read uh, read something and then put it down and reflect on it. Because to me, that's what I hope people do with what I read and also when I go out speaking. I try not to tell people what to think. What I try to do is give people something to reflect on and do their own thinking. Yeah, I think the stories you use are really powerful for doing that. Um, no, I certainly try to focus on storytelling. That's yeah, really yeah. my main focus. Uh, it's you know, That's how the human brain has evolved, truly. Everyone learns from stories. Yeah, I feel like we really connect through stories too. So that was... Mm-hmm. A motivation for us to do like a podcast and we love we love hearing stories so anytime you want to plug a story feel free <laughs> you know you have lots of them um where can people find the book besides it's on your blog for sure it, you can you can you can go to teacher tom and you can find the blog and you can click to the book there and it takes you to our page we have our own um sales page and just google teacher tom's first book okay um, that'll take you to that that's the easiest way to do it that's awesome well shall we get into teacher language absolutely as soon as this um siren passes my apartment <laughs> <laughs> so um we wanted to start out um just by talking a little bit about your article the real work of teaching um uh-huh. yeah because when we read that we were like this is what really what we're trying to get at with this whole episode of teacher language Um, especially the part where you say the words we say and the tones we use with the people in our lives they make us work to become the people we've always wanted to be only because that's the kind of person we want them to be and I think Uh that's so important because young children they are so they look up to their teachers they look up to the adults in their lives and if we're sitting there and reacting to them in negative ways and not mindful, nurturing ways, I think we can't expect them to become mindful and nurturing people. I think that's a piece of it, and I agree completely. I think the other piece of it, though, is, and I think this is actually harder for most of us adults, because most of us, you know, when you're hanging out with your kid and you're, you're interacting, your kid you know you're sort of your best self in a way it's when we're interacting with the rest of the world that it really makes us better people i mean if you're if you tend to get in lots of conflicts with people that's what your child is going to be learning if you tend to be somebody who who um you know uses a lot of foul language you swear a lot your kid is going to learn how to use you can't you are role modeling all, all the time um, and what i found is that we're, and not just through speaking through behaviors too is that when you're around your child, I think one of the stories I told in that article is that when my daughter was, you know, she was probably a year and a half, not even, she was in the back of the car one day and she started cursing out traffic. <laughs> and that was not, that didn't come naturally. That was something that she had heard me doing. And it suddenly made me realize, of course, she's listening all the time. Right. And she's learning that she's learning that behavior. Now, she wasn't doing it with the sort of anger that I had, but I realized this has to make me a better person. I need to stop doing that um, in order to be like, you know, and the same thing goes with, say, you know, we're always harassing our kids to clean up their rooms or to tidy up. Well, the best way to teach that is to be tidy yourself. Right. Right. You know what I mean? To me, this is that article really for me was a lot about the speaking and the language used, but also about the the role modeling right that is the that to me is the real work of teaching um is being the person you want them to be 
Yes, and and that's hard to do, I think, for a lot of people. It kind of goes back to the be the change, you know, guys. Thing. Yeah. On a micro scale. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think it's so hard to always, again, going back to, yeah, going back to <laughs> mindfulness, just being mindful that you are a role model in every moment. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's a great way to, um, it's a great way to, you know, become a better person. I feel like being a parent made me a better human being because, you know, you get sloppy when you're just hanging around with adults all the time. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so true. You get sloppy. You do get a little sloppy. Um, Let's talk about like how you think of just the way you use language with children in general. Like, do you have any? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that it's first of all, I think we talk way too much to kids. I think you know, especially I think we should uh, leave a lot more silence and not fill up the room with our words. I think teachers, in, in particular. Um, tend to fill up all the empty spaces with our words and it's they're all good words and there, there's nothing wrong with them but it's uh, what it is is it, it's forcing children to pay attention to us rather than what perhaps they would like to be paying attention to um, but the thing I like to think about the most is now then there's research to back this up 80% of the words that adult the sentences adults say to children are commands we just were and, talking with another um uh, guest on the show about she said 90% when researchers go into the classroom uh, 90% is what they call um, housekeeping talk uh, like make sure the markers are put away yeah. wash your hands and, and, and it's also just even the phraseology of it is a command it's you know you hear it all the time I mean it's you know if you I, I was down at the water park we had this splash park down the street from my house and there were kids you know this is a place where kids are supposed to be having fun and I still are the parents very joyfully saying to their children, "Go in it. Don't mm. be afraid." And those are those phrases are phrased as commands. Yeah. And if you think about that, just I mean, and if you're doing that, and the research I've seen says eighty percent. I can totally believe ninety percent of the. I, that's the, there's various you know points, but it's a very high percentage. And think about that. Nobody likes to be told what to do. I mean, none of us do it. That's age. so true. I mean, I think this is true. It's not just of humans. It's true of animals, too. I mean, I, uh, my dog, you know, if I take my dog and she loves to be with me, she loves to spend time with me, she comes and snuggles with me. When I get in bed, she, you know, wants to be inside of me. <laughs> but if I make the mistake of taking her outside and putting her on the leash, in whatever direction I pull on the leash, she always pulls in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. You know, you take a newborn baby and they're moving their arms and legs around, and if you push against any of their appendages, they push back. Yeah. Nobody likes to be told what to do. I, I love using this um, this thought experiment. If you imagine you know, you're at home uh, by yourself and you're watching TV or reading a book and you're eating crackers and you've got crumbs on you and there's crumbs on the floor. You've made a mess. You don't care, though. You're by yourself. And, uh, you know, and you're even thinking to yourself, oh, you know, I should go get the vacuum cleaner and clean that up. And if your spouse walks in the room at that moment and says, vacuum the rug, yeah. there's no way in hell you're going to vacuum the rug then. In fact, you're probably going to get mad. You're probably going to say, no, you vacuum the rug. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's probably going to be the impetus for a fight because we all resist it. Because the problem with the command is it only, it doesn't leave any room for thinking. It's basically a command for obedience. So you either, you have two choices. You can obey or disobey. And I mean, that's what parents say that all the time. Oh, well, Johnny, he doesn't listen to me. And I, my answer is, I think he is listening to you. He's just not making the choice you want him to make. Right. Yeah. And because and, and it's a miracle. I mean, with eighty percent, it's a miracle that we that they ever do anything we want them to do. To be <laughs> <Yeah>. honest, <laughs> I mean, I'm really thinking of uh, looking at it a different way now. I've never thought about like the you have two choices: to obey or disobey. If you're giving commands, and I also think a command, in a certain way too, can be really like. Um, not validating like let's say a child is upset and you're telling them don't be sad or if, well yeah right. don't be sad or right. like go in the go in the go in the splash pad even like if, uh-huh. if they're showing that they're maybe hesitant like right. you're all of a sudden like washing away a feeling that that was there maybe right right uh, and you know so often we think we can mitigate these commands by adding the word please to them mm-hmm. like you know, come here, please. It's still a command. You know, we're still offering that. And I do. I think it invalidates. It, it just doesn't give any, any room for thinking. And as a teacher, I think that's our number one goal is to have children in our lives who are thinking. Yes, that's true. And I true. think the same thing goes. It's There was this great exercise. Uh, one of my mentors, a man named Tom Drummond, had us do when I was at, uh, taking coursework. 
and he had us put um, four pieces of masking tape on the back of our hands, two on one hand, two on the other, and the assignment was to spend the entire classroom day, and we were going to make a tally mark for every sentence we said to children for a whole day. And we're going to divide them into one of four categories. One were commands, or he calls them um, directive statements. Yeah. The second one were questions. The third category were, were like social niceties, like pleases, thank yous, how are yous, those kind of things. And the fourth category were just pure informational statements, just statements of fact. And we had been talking about this idea that 80% of our sentences are commands, <clears throat> and how we'd like to maybe not do that. Um, <laughs> we all went out to our classrooms. We came back and aggregated all of our uh, tally marks, and sure enough, 80% of the things we'd said to the kids during that day had been commands. So it's a really hard thing to change. It's in our culture. It's in our, it's in our expectations of how adults interact with children. And even those of us, like the three of us here and everybody listening, who disagree with that, who would rather not do it, we still do it. We still perpetuate it. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to do. So what do you now, do for, to combat that in your okay. classroom? So one of the things is you can, in almost every case, and I do want to talk about this culture of questioning children as well before we move on too far. But Okay. Really, I mean, look, and I, I guess I should just, I'll just finish this story here in that way, and I'll get to what you just asked. Yeah. Um, you know, what I found is actually when I came back from this exercise, I had done a, a commendable job. I had actually not bossed the kids around a lot. Yeah. But what I had done is I had asked a ton of questions. Uh-huh. I had even had to add an extra piece of masking tape on my wrist to accommodate <laughs> all my little tally marks. And Tom saying, my mentor, Tom Drummond, said to me, he he said, well, tell me about that. What happened there? And I said, well, you know, I asked a question, and and the kids don't always answer you. So, you know, I rephrased it, and I asked it again, and then, Mm. you know, they didn't. I was goofing around. I'd ask another question. He said, you know, you need to shut up. (laughs) He said, you know, you're stressing the kids out. because you're." And he said, essentially, you're not giving them enough time to think. Right. And, you know, the rule of thumb that he taught me, and that I think is is actually a, a conservative estimate, is that, if you're going to ask a child a question, you need to wait a minimum of 12 to 15 seconds before you can expect an answer. We were just reading that, your article about okay. the stop yeah. article about um, 12 to 15 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and, and the truth is, is, I think it's more like 30 seconds or even a minute, which is not very long. Yeah. But the truth is, is almost every adult, and I'm not going to give you 12 seconds of dead air here. Yeah. To give you the example. <laughs> but, but if I gave you 12 seconds of dead air, I guarantee one of you would feel like you had to jump into it. Oh, yeah. It's really hard to leave that. But really, if you give the children a chance to actually think, you know, and that's our goal. And the more I think about questions as a teacher and you questioning children. So we talked about commanding children. We're talking about questioning children. The more I, I find it, it's that is also almost like putting an imposition on them. When I ask a question of a child, I'm, I'm almost commanding them, now reply to me. Yeah. Yes. So in a way, a question is just, and most of the questions we ask, you know, you've heard that expression, there are no stupid questions. Yeah. yeah. I beg to differ. I think <laughs> most questions teacher ask, teachers ask children are of the stupid variety. <laughs> and a great example would be, you know, a girl is standing at an easel, you know, painting. Yeah. So she's doing exactly what she should be doing. She's exploring color, texture, shape, um, design, mixing colors, you know, moving her whole body and, you know, fully engrossed in testing the world and doing what she's asking and answering her own questions. And invariably, an adult will walk up, point at the painting and say, what color is that? Yes. <laughs> that, what a stupid question. I mean, yeah. what you've done, you've, in one second, you've taken her from her proper role as a tester of the world and turned her into a test taker. Right, it's a and, test. And, and, and it's a really not a very good test anyway, because either she knows she's using red, and now you've interrupted her and made her stop and answer your question, it's red, or she doesn't know it's red, and now you've put her in a position of playing a guessing game. Right. Uh, blue, green, you're not teaching anything, and you're just testing. Um, and so what I like to say is what's much better, if you really need to know that she knows that's red, and I don't know why you'd need to know that, but if you do, <laughs> better is just to use an informational statement. You're painting with red. Right. Because then in that moment, if she already knows, you haven't interrupted her. She's just got another piece of information in her world. And if she doesn't know, now she does in context. Right. In the moment that she needs it, when she's right there in front of it. And she has a much better chance now of absorbing that piece of information. And so that's what you asked me. What do you do? How do you get rid of the commands? How do you minimize the questions? Right. Is almost every command can be turned into an informational statement. 
I'll give you an example. If you're a parent, and instead of saying to the child, you know, get in the car, what you can say is, it's time to go now. Okay. Which is, it, it's a fundamental difference because suddenly, get in the car, the child goes, I can either get in the car or not. Right. If yeah. you say, it's time to go now, now the child is in a position of thinking for him or herself. It's then, oh, right. it's time to go. Well, you know, that means I need to get in the car. And suddenly, when and people like to think for themselves. Totally. I'll never forget this one little boy saying to me, and this, is, this was so genius, and he'd been with me for a couple of years, but I'd never said any of this to him. But one day he said to me, he said, I don't like to do what people tell me to do. I like to think of it myself and do it. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> and I think that's how we all are. Much better if our spouse came home and just, you know, didn't say anything because you thought of vacuuming the rug yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, Not even look at it and roll your eyes, right? It's, exactly. Uh, no, that's totally true. So, I mean, you know, another example would be instead of saying, don't put your finger in the electrical outlet, you can tell the truth of, if you do that, you might die. Right. Which has the virtue of being a really thought-provoking idea. Ooh. I'd rather not die. Right. I'll stick my finger in there. Well, I'd say the time that a teacher, most more often than not, commands children is during tidy up time. It's time to clean up. Great. And like, put that away. Hang that up. Stop playing. Yeah. We were hoping to speak about this. Yeah. Okay. And, and for the way, so the way we do it at our school, and I love to have people come visit during this time because we actually do a great job of it. Even the par- amateur parents in the classroom have picked up on this. Yeah. Is, you know, we, we start off with a signal, like bang, bang, I have a drum, boom, boom, boom. Right. And that signals that it's time to clean up. And I, if your classroom's like mine, probably 50% go right at it. You know, about half the kids are ready to go. So they start yeah. putting away the blocks. Hang up. Then you've got another 25% who aren't necessarily opposed, but they're in the middle of something. Yeah. Right? They've, yeah. They're, if they're working on a puzzle or they're painting a painting or they're building a building, and once they finish that, they'll join you. And so I think you need to honor that and give them the opportunity to. And nobody wants to be interrupted in the middle totally. of a puzzle. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, and so many people try to mitigate, try to do that by giving the five minute warning. Yeah. Um, which I think is backwards. Yeah. Uh, because what happens with the five minute warning is, you know, you and I, if I said to you, I've got to go in five minutes, you would start wrapping things up like, oh, well, I better get ready and start right. putting your notebook away and get ready to go. If you say that to a child, most children think something along the lines of, oh, my God, I've only got five minutes and there's a ton I have left to do. And that's usually where the classroom gets a lot messier. They go to the shelves, they get all the toys off they've been wanting to go play with, everything else. Mm-hmm. And I think it's much, and they get in a kind of a, a manic little rush. Right. I think much better is to give the signal and then give them that five minutes or ten minutes even after you've made the signal and allow plenty of time for them to then finish what they're doing and then join the group. And so anyway, then, you, then you've got, without doing anything other than banging your drum, you've got... 75% of the kids pitching in. You might have to wait a little longer than you want to, but you've got, you know, within about 10 minutes, you've got most of them working on it. And then there's that 25% who want nothing to do with it, right? Yeah, they're going to the right? bathroom. They're, they're, they're hiding somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so for me, that's when we start making our informational statements. There's a block on the floor. It belongs on the shelf. Right. So suddenly you, you put the, instead of saying, put that on the shelf and they can obey or disobey. Or can you put that, right. yeah. Or, or can you, which is a question. Much better they can answer no. Right. Um, much better is to just leave that. Almost like your language becomes a loose part, right? You leave your language there, and they can Ooh, pick like it up. That. And most, some of the kids will sit there and go, "Yeah, there's a block on the floor. Block I could be the one who puts it on the shelf." Right. And it, I invariably, it always happens if you point out a block that's on the floor and it belongs on the shelf. Children, it might not be the one you want to go there, but one of the kids is going to go take that on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the costumes belong on the costume rack. Just a statement of fact rather than command, and you will always have children participating in that. And I'm not going to say that the kids hiding always come over and join, but it <laughs> greatly increases the odds. Right. Uh, because suddenly they see that your attention is focused on just making statements, and they, their brains, they start thinking about what you're saying. Um, and, you know, I don't expect every kid every day to help clean up anyway. Um, I don't expect every adult to in an adult circumstance. If I have a meeting with a bunch of adults and there's chairs that need put away, that's so gonna, true. Some people have to rush off and do something mm-hmm. else. Some people have to go to the bathroom. Some, you know, some people have a sore back and they can't help you. So, you know, mm-hmm. over time, everybody will pitch in. But on any given day, I think 75% is pretty good. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of how I implement that sort of uh, in, in terms of tidy up time. I think the other time we do it, um, we boss kids around a lot, is around rules. Yeah. Like no running, no hitting. No yeah. taking things from other people. And the way we work on that at our school is uh, the adults simply don't make rules for the children. 
the children make all their rules for themselves. Okay. And so the way the children do this is that, you know, I tell the parents, and they're working with me in the classroom on that first day, I will say to the parents, we are in an official state of anarchy today, and our only job is to keep kids, you know, from hurting each other, from killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> and what happens then is usually within the first hour, but certainly within the first day, someone will say, hey, he hit me, or he took that from me. Uh-huh. And I'm able to say, oh, you didn't like to be hit, did you? Nobody likes to be hit, do they? Well, tell you what, let's all agree not to hit each other. And so I get out the big piece of butcher paper and I write down, you know, we all agree, no hitting. Now, these are pre-reading children. You know, they're, they're five, right. five yeah. and under. Yeah. Um, but it, they don't care. I mean, the fact that I'm writing the words up there, they're watching it on the right. wall. Right, they, they're and then, Usually then it. it's like the, the kids' the hands go up. It's no hitting, no biting, no taking things from people, no yelling at people. You get kind of the Ten Commandments right there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you get the fundamental rules, the agreements. And I talk about them as agreements. I try to as much as I can rather than rules. Right. But then what happens now is that when a child does hit another child, instead of me saying no hitting, I'm in a position of saying, we all agreed not to hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm suddenly reminding them of their agreements. I'm just making a statement of fact about the rules and the way, our, you know, you've agreed not to hit people. So we're going to have to find another way to solve our problem. So suddenly, again, we're putting it by the agency back in the children's heads to do their own thinking rather than me having to serve as their conscience or as, the, as their self-control. Right. And you're just using your statements to kind of guide it. And I love I love the idea of language as a loose part. I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was hoping too that you could just go over really quickly how you, like for the cleanup, how, how do you set that expectation of like the drum means it's getting, it's getting, getting to be time. Yeah, okay, so I, I kind of think about it this way. There's there's three categories of things adults know more about than children. Now, I, I've been saying this for a long time, and I'm waiting for somebody to tell me I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, nobody has, so I'm going to keep saying it until somebody does. And one of them is schedules. Okay. You know, schedule, we know more about schedules than young children do. We know more about uh, safety than yeah. children do, and we know more about courtesy than children do. Everything else really almost falls under the category of trivia. Um, in my view, because of course I know more than a five-year-old about Elizabethan fiction. Totally. Um, but you know what? Almost every five-year-old knows more about the Frozen movie than I do. Right. Or <laughs> so dinosaurs. Tri- you never know. Dinosaurs. I mean, they've got their own trivia. So the rest of it is just sort of you know um, stuff you go- go- you can Google. <laughs> um, the, but you know, so schedule. So for me, a schedule is a statement of fact because we, the fact of life is there are schedules. I mean, I would love there not to be schedules, but the truth is my life would fall apart without them. Totally. Um, so kind of, you, we do have schedules we have to live in. So, so um, the way I start that off is that, you know, I beat the drum and I sing a song. Hey, 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 put everything away into the place in which it stays. Hey, 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 hey. You know, just start singing that song based on the uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs song. Yeah. And, and then we, uh, and then that's sort of the signal. So that... That is the indication for the most of the children, except that as their signal. So that's right. how we set it up. And you know, and I tell the parents because, like I said, I've got all these adults in the room. So the truth is, is, if I needed cleanup to be done in five minutes or two minutes, I could get it done. Just have the adults do it. Right. But I don't. I I want the children because that's when. That's. I mean, when, I never forget when I bought my first house. My wife and I bought our first house. Mm-hmm. And I would remember walking like in amazement for the first week, walking through that house, and I'd be in the living room, and I'd think to myself, "This is my living room." <laughs> and I'd go in the kitchen. This is my kitchen. Went out in the backyard. Said, "This is my piece of the sky." <laughs> and I felt, but but it, I didn't believe it until I had to crawl underneath the crawl space and change the filter. Right. The furnace filter. <laughs> I, until I had to mow that lawn. That wasn't my lawn. And I think that's when we really become owners of things is when we're caring for them and maintaining them wow and yeah so for me i want the children to that's how they become owners of their own classroom is fundamentally through that so i tell the parents if it takes us 20 minutes if it takes half an hour i don't care i don't want you to lift a finger other than like sanitizing things things that only an adult can do but as far as tidying up and getting things put away and if the children choose to put things on a shelf that i don't want them on that's that's on me that's not on them you know what I mean? If they tr- put the blocks mm-hmm. on a different shelf than I think they should be on, then if it really bothers me, it's my job to stay after school and put them back on the other shelf. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because they're they're doing their job the way they see fit. 
Yeah, and well, and I also think too, just the whole timing of that. You're saying it could be ten minutes, could be thirty. Um, probably takes your and the teach and the parents who are also teaching with you that day, your, um, stress levels down, you know, like that's yeah. just so much less pressure on you and yeah. them and the children. Well, I, feel no, I feel no stress around tidying up time. I mean, and, did, and I, now that you mentioned that, I'd never thought about that. It is not a stressful time. And me. that's yeah. ideal because yeah. that's not <laughs> how it goes all the time. Yeah, and it's not stressful for the children. I think it becomes stressful when you're in a school environment where there's like a particular lunch period where you have to of be course. in the cafeteria at a certain time and you start the cleanup too late and suddenly you've only got five minutes to get it done and then the kids... So I think, you know, that's a reality that I don't have to deal with and mm-hmm. I don't know how to deal with it, but um, I would just say start tidy up time 30 minutes before you have to have it done. And I think, so. too, you talk a lot about the environment and I think your environment can also play into um your cleanup schedule like maybe it's uh there are a lot of areas in your room that you can kind of design to not have to be cleaned up um if you are a class that needs to move on to certain things in your schedule quickly i guess um so i think those are ways to kind of like bridge that gap well i know a lot of schools you know they will for example the block play area um just leave the constructions up from day to day totally um day after day i we don't do that but i know a lot of places do right yeah or like um just like the art stuff kind of um can stay out and it just mm-hmm. depending on like what how your space works i guess exactly well that's exactly it i mean I, ideally you have a special art room and a special construction play area and all this stuff and then you have a special place for your circle time and, but since we're sharing our classroom with three distinct classes of children right you know by the time you come back the stuff you've left behind is going to all be gone anyway yeah. Um, so we, we sort of have to clear the decks for each new class. Totally, totally. Um, the next thing we would love to chat about is the way you speak about labeling behaviors. Because uh-huh. I think when we get into labeling, we get into bad behavior on our part. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. And um, I think what you say about how like labeling in your, in, is it called labeling young boys? Uh, that was, yeah, Sorry, labeling young boys, yeah. Really, it's wonderful the way you say, like, you want the children to understand their behaviors, and that's our jobs to help them under, understand the behaviors and not label them. I think the classic one we do, actually, the most common one is to say, oh, he's shy or she's shy. Shyness is an emotion, and it comes and goes. I am not shy, but, you know, when I started this kind of phone conversation with you, I was feeling a little shy. Totally. And it's an emotion that we have. Or when I meet new people, I feel a little bit shy. But it's not who I am. It's how I feel. The same, and I think that's the same way, way with too with what we label aggressive. Um, you know, if there is aggressive behavior, and that's no denying that. But that person who's doing is not aggressive. In mm-hmm. that moment, he's behaving aggressive, or she's behaving aggressively. And I think it's it might sound to some people like a distinction with a, a you know difference without a, a distinction without a difference. But I I do believe what happens is when people start labeling us things, we tend to internalize these things and then start thinking of ourselves, oh, I am aggressive, Mm -hmm. I can't help it, or I am shy. I can't tell you how many people I know who've told me they got labeled shy in their childhood and they feel like it crippled them throughout their lives. Yeah. And I and know I think children. The same thing happens with aggressive is you get labeled aggressive young, especially a young boy, especially a young boy of color. Uh, you suddenly are finding yourself, you know, that's that fits all the stereotypes, and it becomes a self-perpetuating uh, or self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy. Exactly, and in a short space of time, I think even within the course of your school year, I've had children all of a sudden say to me, "Unfortunately." I'm a bad boy. And, I'm a bad boy. I've had that. Yeah. And and it just breaks my heart because it's like, whoa, th- there was total miscommunication and it's done real damage. Um, Absolutely. I think this gets into a lot of about patience um, uh-huh. and mindfulness again too, just how you are reacting to behaviors. And yeah, I think it's important to keep I mean, I think to the degree you can. We're all human beings, right? So we're going to have emotions too, and we're going to sometimes feel angry and sometimes feel anxious and sometimes feel sad. And those will come out in our behaviors. But to the degree we can, it's just to stay calm and matter of fact. Um, because um, about, you know, when you hit someone, it hurts them. Right. You know, and, 
and 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 draw and, and draw with the children. The, let them see the consequence. They may not today be ready to understand it developmentally. Um, you know, I'll tell you, you. know, there's a lot of young two year olds who can hit a kid and not quite get that their hit was why that kid's crying. Yes. You know what I mean? They're just developmentally not ready to make that connection. But I don't think it hurts to still speak about it. It becomes it becomes sort of a mantra we can talk to them about. When you hit people, it hurts them. Yeah, uh, when totally. You, when you take something, she's crying because you took that from her. I'm going to give it back to her because she had it first. And these are all statements of fact, by the way. I'm just I'm also mm-hmm. using informational statements here. Yes. Um, I think some of the most powerful informational statements you can use are things like, I can't let you do that. Or I won't let you do that. I can't let you hurt people. It, yeah. I can't let, well, yeah, exactly. I can't let you. I, I'm, part of my job is to keep people safe, so I can't let you hit people. Yeah. And you can do it firmly without anger. Yes, that's the that's the key, I think, because when you're doing when there is aggressive behavior, I think a lot of people jump to aggressive um, like reaction to stop that, yeah. and they're not thinking like, oh, I'm being aggressive. But when you're lunging and grabbing, I think your brain also wants to go along with that and yep. and and so maybe aggressive things come out of your mouth um, yeah, we're also and you know the truth is is we have high energy i mean it, it it is upsetting to watch someone hit somebody else yeah whether it's adult or a child i mean it is upsetting i mean it's you know those of us in the business who've watched a lot of kids hit a lot of kids maybe we're a little <laughs> more immune to it yeah. but it's uh you know but when you're sitting there in the moment and somebody just you know wails on somebody's the back of somebody's head unexpected it, it you feel your natural instinct for my god that's so unfair that's so unjust right you know, all of those emotions come up for us so it's it, it is hard um, and I do think that when we do that, when we do express ourselves too loudly, and I've done that before, where you'll you know stop, yeah, and you'll 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 shout it out too louder than you expected, you know, your next step is to after you've talked to the child is to then apologize. Yes. I'm sorry, I raised my voice. Uh, I should not have spoken so loudly too, because usually it scares them. I've had that experience as well, like where I feel like. I was like just trying to get a child to do something I wanted them to do and I was getting more and more frustrated so my tone was becoming more and more um, aggressive or scary I'm sure scary (laughs) and just after apologizing to this child and saying like I just I'm so sorry I want us to be friends I shouldn't have gotten so upset they totally our relationship changed well and it's also what's great your role modeling Right? Because right. that's exactly what you want them to be doing, right. I mean, ultimately. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's so important. Um, lastly, can you just talk about how you deal with like the idea of democracy in your classroom? I just feel like you'd be a person who would have an amazing view on like the competency <laughs> well, of children. and. Well, for me, you know, it starts with the premise that, you know, um, I am not any child superior in any way and they are not my superior. Uh, we are colleagues together um, going through this process. There are certain things, certain responsibilities I have, like safety and schedules and courtesies that I, you know, that I have to show, be responsible for. But that doesn't mean I'm their boss. And it doesn't mean they're one of our mantras around our school is I'll be the boss of me. You be the boss of you. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to do. I, I think to me, one of the most important things we do is, you know, so a democratic society, right? That's the reason we have education in a democratic society is so children can be good citizens. And how can they learn to be good citizens if they don't get the opportunity to be good citizens? Totally. And that's, to me, that is the fundamental um, job of every school in a democratic society is to give children the opportunity to function in a democracy. So um, I talked already about the way we make rules and yeah. where the kids and where, where and it's not just a democratic process. We do it by consensus. Every single child has to agree in order for us to make these agreements with each other. Right. And so to me, that's, you know, that's like a legislative process right there. And sort of by default, I'm in, I guess, the executive branch. My job is to help, you know, <laughs> yeah. enforce the laws, which is sort of along the lines of like, um, um, you know, uh, you know, the way, and of course, the consequence for breaking one of the rules is I remind you. Right. I want to remind you we all agreed not to hit people. I want to remind you we all agreed not to run inside. Yeah. And it, typically, that's all you need to do. I mean, almost, I would say 99% of the time, that's all it takes. Maybe I have to repeat it two or three times. Um, and the, the far, you know, so it, there's almost never any, I've never had to use a consequence beyond every now and then if a child is repeatedly, you know, 10 or 10 times forgets. Um, their agreement 
I'll say to a child, I'm going to ask you to play in a different place right. until, you're, until you're ready to come back. And I've never had a child be wrong about when they're ready to come back. Usually they just step out for a couple minutes, they watch the play, and then go back in perfectly fine. My heroes, my democratic heroes, are the children who walk mm-hmm. away and never come back. Because to me, that tells me that they've realized there's something about that play that causes them to forget their agreements. Right, and their understanding. And, and, they, and, in the, in, and in the name of this community, this society they live in, they're going to go do something else. I love that. And so for me, that, and so for me, you know, in a democratic, you know, and a citizen is somebody who thinks critically, right? They think for themselves. And so to me, it's really that's why it's so important to remember you know, that I don't tell them what to think or what to do. That's not my job. My job is to be there with them and help them and maybe show them, you know, maybe direct their attention to the consequences of some of their decisions um, and, to, and to give them advice and counsel when they need it. But my job is not to tell them what to do. It's for them to think for themselves, for them, you know, for them to ask a lot of questions. Uh, it's important for them to question authority. And I tell parents this, and this makes some people very nervous. I say, I'm going to be teaching your children to question your authority. Wow. Because without, if you don't question authority, then you're not really in a democratic society. Totally. And and so I say to children, I, you know, so that's why when the two year olds come, the first thing I do, um, the first thing I do is I I, um, I have make sure my box of plastic farm animals is there, and I get out the pig, and I say the pig says moo, <laughs> and usually they laugh, you know, oh, no, the cow says moo, but I want them to listen to what I say. Right, and if it doesn't match what they already know about the world, then I want them. I want them to call me on it. I want them to know it's not just their right, but their responsibility to call me on it. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of a consensus rather than a vote. We've talked about this before mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. podcast um, because it automatically lets everyone be involved. Well, and the other thing that's important is even if you can't achieve consensus, the conversation is what's important. Right. This has actually happened two times almost identically, and so I kind of get the two stories mixed up a little bit. I want to share this one, though. One that was uh, a few years ago, there was a little girl named Hildy, and her mother said to me one day, she wasn't doing it judgmentally, she just said, uh, there was a group of boys who every day played, um, they played uh, superheroes, right? Fierce poses and bragging about your, po- your superpowers we and running all about fast that. and jumping <laughs> and climbing. You know, everybody, it happens in every preschool classroom. And she said, well, Hildy is scared of them. Yeah. And she said, I'm trying to encourage Hildy to raise her hand at circle time and suggest a rule about it. And so I said, well, and she said, but Hildy's kind of nervous about it. I said, okay, well, I'll keep an eye on her. And sure enough, about two days later, I saw Hildy's hand up. And I said, Hildy uh, has something to say. And Hildy said, I want to make a rule. No superheroes. And the, the, <laughs> it, we just, it went dead silent. <laughs> Everyone was like, no, 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 no. This group of four boys who are kind of the leaders of the superhero play are right down in front of me. And suddenly they just went, no. <laughs> and then, 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 though, there was a wave back of, yes. Oh, wow. And you could see Hildy look over and say, wait a minute. Other I'm people. I'm not the only one yeah. who feels this way. And that we it turned into you know, a yelling match, right? They were yelling, no, yes, no, he's yelling back and forth and all this. And so I kind of said, okay, if we're going to talk about this, we need to talk one at a time. Although I got them all, everybody sort of settled down and started giving everybody a turn. Hildy, why don't you want, you know, why don't you like the superheroes? And she said, well, they, I'm afraid of them. And one of these boys, I looked at his face, he, he was just crushed. And he said, but we save people. <laughs> Right, and so suddenly we had both perspectives out there, and then so all the superheroes got their chance to tell about why they liked being superheroes, and then I had the people talk about why they don't want to be, um, why they why they are afraid, and I had them actually sit literally. I asked the superheroes on one side and the people who were afraid to sit on the other side, and one of the boys said, "What if we don't care?" And so the majority <laughs> sat in the middle, <laughs> which was very symbolic. And, and these two these two sides each got a chance to listen to each other one-on-one, say what scares me because I'm worried I'm going to get hurt, or I like playing it because I feel like I'm rescuing people. And then with that at the end, we couldn't make a rule, and so we couldn't agree. So I just said, I just want everybody to notice that these people over here really like to be superheroes, and they think it's fun. And these people over here are kind of scared of you guys when they do it, and they, you know, and they, and, and they don't think it's so much fun. And then we went out and played. And a couple days later, you know, nothing really changed except for a couple days later, suddenly this boy named Owen, who was the leader of the superheroes, was running along with his cape, big bold running, and he ran past a boy named Jack who flinched. Mm. And Owen stopped in his tracks and said, Jack, I'm sorry I scared you. Yeah. And, Jack, and then Jack said, 
that's okay. I was just scared for a second. Oh my God. <laughs> and it just, it was just so incredible to me to see that, you know, what happened is not that our society, nobody had to change, but our understanding of who we are as a community, as a democratic society changed. Suddenly now we understood that I believe what I believe and I like what I like, but you know what, this person's part of my community and he has a different feeling. And I just love that that, I mean, I would love to see, you know, an actual democratic society that way. Is that a blog post? I've written that one, yeah. Okay, yeah. I was like, that needs to be one. We need to uh-huh. link it. Yes. No, I've written that one. There was another one that was a similar situation where two days later, uh, one of, they were playing bad guys, in, bad guys instead of superheroes, same game. Um, and one of the boys, three days later, his mother came to me and said, last night when we were in bed and they were saying their evening prayers, which their family did, mm-hmm. and she said, when we're saying prayers, Henry told me he's going to stop playing bad guys uh, because Francis doesn't like it. Mm. And sure enough, from that day on, they played good guys. It was Aww. the same game. They just changed the name, and that satisfied Francis. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so when you give kids a chance to solve those problems, it might not—they might not do it today or tomorrow, but eventually they're gonna. That's what I love about these democratic processes: is it makes it gives people a chance to think. You don't make decisions in the moment, even in, a, in our actual dem- democratic mm-hmm. society. It takes it takes a lot of debate and a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, ideally yes. compromise uh, before you finally get to um, you know agreements with one another and i think the big a big part of it too is that you're operating from a place of i am not in like i am not commanding and i am not um you're you're not operating from like i just want this to be resolved you're like about the journey and so when they're all shouting yes no yes no at each other i'm imagining that you were pretty zen <laughs> I, I love it i actually really like it when they're doing that because right. they're 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 reflecting uh the way the real world is in some ways um yeah. you know we go out to these you know these protest marches or you read the newspapers or go online and that's how democracy kind of works and we hate it sometimes but it's kind of how it has to work right and then you offer them though too like if we want to talk about it we got to do it one at a time well, I think the key thing that adults forget and that I try to impose uh, to a certain extent is that you also have to listen. Right. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the piece that maybe we miss out on our big democracy is sometimes we don't have to listen to the other people. And what I think is what I try to do, and I've learned this from the children, is when I engage politically, which I try to do at least every day, is I try to spend some of that time listening to people I disagree with. Yeah. The perspective taking piece of that, I think, is really important. Um Tom, Teacher Tom, can I call you Teacher Tom? You can call me Tom, Teacher Tom. Teacher Tom, you like are a radical dude. <laughs> Thank you. We love it. Like you're so awesome. Thank you so much. It was yeah. honestly like such a big deal to us. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Um, we will talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Thank you both. Bye bye. Bye bye. So that's our show. If you would like to learn more about Teacher Tom or read his wonderful writing, you can head to his blog at teachertomsblog.blogspot.com. His website is where he sells his book, so be sure to check it out. You can also find Tom on Facebook and Instagram at The Teacher Tom. For a written version of Tom's info and for more information on the topics we discussed in this episode, you can head over to www thereflectiveteacherpodcast.com. That's our website, and on it, we post show notes for each episode and resources so you can learn more about each topic we discuss. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our mailing list so you can stay up to date on all things Reflective Teacher Podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at the Reflective Teacher Podcast, or find us on Facebook under the same name. Thanks for listening.